So this is our last sermon in this series, Proclaim. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, next week, by the way, my own brother-in-law is speaking to you, Dr. Steady Hatukale Mono. He is uh, originally from Zambia. He is a college president in Schenectady, New York. And uh, I am going to be backpacking, so I will not be here. So um, Kim and I are taking 10 of us, all of our kids, some, a spouse of one of our children, a boyfriend of our other daughter, and uh, our two foster boys from Afghanistan. We're all going uh, backpacking in Dolly Sods in West Virginia. So you can be praying for us that we don't like fall off a mountain or something. Um, we're going to be uh, not only backpacking, but rock climbing and, and caving. So oh, that's going to be so nice. I'm just excited about that. Um, and uh, Steady is a wonderful man. You'll, you'll love him. He is, he is just full of life, and, and you'll, you'll, really, uh, you'll really be challenged by him. So anyway, um, in 1972, a uh, long time ago now, goodness, um, I was five years old at that time. Uh, Neil and Carol Anderson left uh, Spokane, Washington to go to Papua New Guinea uh, to be missionaries to the Falopa people. Uh, they were an isolated people group uh, who didn't have a written language, so the Andersons uh, helped to create an alphabet. They, they had they written words, you know, a dictionary, and then they taught them all how to read. And then in translating the Bible for them, uh, they got to John chapter 6, where uh, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And they encountered a problem right there, because the Philopa people didn't eat bread. I don't think they even ever saw it. Um, the staple in their diet was sweet potato. So instead of translating, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, he, they translated as, I am the sweet potato of life. Just made sense. In some cultures, I know that they've translated that passage to say that uh, Christ is the rice of life, since that is their staple food. And when the Andersons sort of decided to translate Jesus' words differently, I, I don't believe they were co corrupting God's word, but rather they were making it accessible and knowable to a culture that is foreign to the Jewish culture of the Bible, right? And so it's important to remember that the good news is Jesus and not our culture, right? And this type of evangelism is what we see Paul doing in the last proclamation of this series uh, found in Acts chapter 17. So turn with me to page 758 in your pew Bibles, and we're going to be reading from Acts 17 verses 22 through 34, and you can follow along as I read, but while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little background. Um, Paul is in Athens. He is uh, distressed at all the idols that he sees because they were just like idol collectors. They, they love to philosophize and you know, talk about different ideas and they collect out every little God statue that they could. And um, so he's preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection to a bunch of people who love to discuss all these philosophical ideas and they're sort of confused by him and they invite Paul to come share at the Areopagus and that is... Uh, a word that is translated as Hill of Ares. Uh, it was a site which came to be known or uh, to denote the highest governmental council or judicial court in the area. And they would meet there and they would discuss all the various ideas and issues. So Athens, to me, kind of looks like America, you know, just all the different ideas that are coming in and, and all the different little, you know, sort of gods that we worship or idols that we worship. And it begins like this. Verse 17 
That's verse 17, right? I didn't, I didn't write it in my, or no, verse 22, chapter 17. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. And we're going to hear more about this unknown God in a couple weeks from now. I, uh, I, it's, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll keep going. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made this, the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands, and if he needed, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And notice that that is in quotes, right? And some, some of your own poet, poets have said, we are his offspring. That's also in quotes. It's important. Uh, verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the, by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead, obviously referring to Jesus. Uh, verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. It's like the stumbling block for some. And he said, but others said, and it says, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, <clears throat> a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So we see here that the early church, and we've been seeing this for the past seven weeks, that uh, the early church proclaimed the unknown God has become knowable or known in, in Christ, in Jesus, right? And that all truth is God's truth. That there are many things in this world uh, which can encourage faith and lead unbelievers to faith in Christ. So Paul obviously goes to Athens. He's observing all these numerous idols and shrines and all these things that are dedicated to these uh, different gods. He's encountering philosophers and adherence to multiple worldviews, and he's invited to go speak at, the, speak at this Areopagus, and he proceeds to give a great example of how to connect with people that are far from God, right? He begins by complimenting their religious sort of devotion, but he zeroes in on this altar to an unknown God, and he declares that what they worship as unknown that he will reveal as being the God of Israel, the creator of the world, different from all the other handcrafted gods of the Greek pantheon. And he, neither is, he says, neither, neither is God dependent on, on humans for anything. Rather, he's the God who guides history. Uh, and then Paul states, God made humans in such a way that people would yearn for, or long for him and seek after him and possibly find him, but that the time of ignorance has passed, right? Once you get the gospel preached to you, the time of ignorance has passed. The unknown God is known in Jesus. There was a young pastor once that uh, 
in this small country parish someplace, and he had, a, he had a visit from an elder one day. And the elder seemed sort of uncomfortable, but he went ahead and delivered his message. And he said to him, uh, you quote too many different authors, and you need to just focus on quoting Scripture. Let the Bible speak for itself, the elder said. And that pastor was sort of taken aback by this, uh, but he promised to pray on it and think about it and, and, and get back to him. And upon reflection, he remembered that, you know, the New Testament is actually filled with co- quotations from non-Christian writers, right, or authors. And in each ist- instance, the authors, uh, authors were quoting something to illustrate a point about the Christian life or about faith in Christ. And, and the pastor compiled this little list and he, and he shared it with the elder board saying that he would continue to quote other sources just as Paul and the early church had done. And what we learn here is that we reach the world by interacting with their sources and showing how elements already embedded in their culture point to Christ or point to Jesus. And we see Paul doing this in this speech to the Areopagus, right? While speaking to Greek scholars in, this, in Athens, Paul draws on two sources that were quoted there that, that they would have been familiar with. The first was Epimenides of Crete, and the second was Aratus' poem, uh, Phenomena, if I pronounce it correctly. And in his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul wrote this. He said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel, right? So he illustrates this principle here in Acts 17, drawing on his knowledge of Greek culture to build a bridge with these people, waiting for them to, you know, or or wanting them to see uh, how things have been, they've been actually reading and writing and thinking about in everyday life are actually little bits of p- and pieces of truth. It just wasn't the whole truth yet. And it was propelling them to know this unknown God. As John Calvin later wrote, he said, all truth is from God and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it for it has come from God. Now you think about that statement, all truth is from God. Little side note, I watched this video interview of a professor this week at a, some college, and the guy said, I just, I, the interviewer said, I just want to get down to what is the truth. And the guy said, I'm very uncomfortable with that language. And this is our culture right now. I'm very uncomfortable with that language. He goes, language of truth? He goes, yeah, your truth, your truth may not be my truth. The very definition of truth, there's one truth, right? There's not truth, truth, you know, with, with, a, with an S. There is truth, right? It, it, and falsehood is not truth. So we, we live in a, in, a, in a society right now that is very sort of religious and philosophical and really breaking down these arguments. And it's brilliant that the enemy does this. But just think about that. All truth is from God, right? So... There are untruths out there, right? We know that, springing from sinful hearts of humankind. But as creatures that are created in the image of of, of our creator, we do have a remnant of God's influence in our thinking and in our hearts, right? That is sort of general, general knowledge of God. You know, it's kind of embedded in us. 
Sometimes even atheists get it right, you know, in some things that they say. But the proclamation of the church reflected a recognition that while Jesus is the truth, there was truth out there that could be used to point people to him, right? And that's what Paul is doing here in Acts 17. And once again, the culmination of his message, of this proclamation, is the resurrection of the dead, the hope of the future, of being with God forever, right? Now, in culture today, when, when many believe in uh, some sort of a nebulous life after death, whatever that philosophy of life is, resurrection, that, that idea of resurrection isn't very shocking to a lot of people. But during the time of the early church, a belief in the resurrection wasn't as common. Even within Judaism, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed you lived, you died, that's it. Kind of interesting. And so in a day and an age when Christianity and Islam, two of the most, the largest world, world religions, both teach of life after death, how do we distinguish the Christian message from all others, right? Well, in Acts 17, verse 18, Paul, uh, uh, it specifically mentions uh, that Paul preached Jesus, Right? And at the end of the chapter, Luke lists some of the people that joined them and believed in Christ along with him. And we know that Paul very clearly taught that you must believe in someone, and Jesus was that someone that he preached. And we are no different today. We are all called to do this as well. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I had a conversation yesterday with somebody and they were like, oh, I just want to love people, just want to love people. I said, well, that's, that's fine but you've got to preach Christ because you're called to do that as a Christian. And we had this discussion about that. You can't just live your life doing good works and never mention what Christ is and what he does in life. The centrality of Jesus and his relationship to the resurrection for those who believe must be the focus as we witness to a world that is deaf of the wonders of resurrection, right? The term there's a term called redemptive analogy, right? And that was popularized by, uh, by Don Richardson's book, Peace Child, which was written, probably, I think, back in the 70s. And I met Don once. Um, he was actually the father of my boss when I was a missionary. And he was a brilliant guy at, at a retreat one time in Indonesia. He, they set up 10 chessboards with 10 different players, and, and Don played every single one of those games single-handedly, winning them all within minutes. He was just a brilliant guy. And the concept of redemptive analogy is used within the study of Christian missions to refer to a practice or a belief that is native to any given culture, any different people group, which distinctly parallels or illustrates the gospel, right? And redemptive analogies surface in cultures all across the world, standing as natural bridges for communicating the full depth of the story of the Bible or, or, or a key aspect of it in terms which really penetrate the heart of people. Don Richardson believed that God has implanted redemptive analogies into every single culture, every people group in the world in order to communicate the gospel of Christ to them and that our job as Christians practicing Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, is just to find it and to use it to communicate the gospel to them. So in 1962, 
Don took his wife and his seventh-month-old baby, who would later become my boss, that little baby, uh, to work among the Sawi tribe and, and what, was, what was then known as Dutch New Guinea. And the Sawi were tribal people known to be cannibalistic headhunters. Imagine taking your wife and your little baby into that, right? But Don had felt very strongly that God had called him to work among the Sawi, to go and reach them for Christ. And he explains in one video how God assured him of his safety by implanting a belief in the Sawi that one day they would welcome a tall, white European guy, a guy that they would call the Tuan, and that he would help them and that they could not harm him, right? And this all happened long before uh, Don ever sensed a calling to go to the Sawi, and that's miracle number one in the story. But they had to overcome this great language barrier, right? Nobody, there was no writing, nobody knew the language, all this stuff. On top of being under constant threat of violence and exposure to, to various diseases and, you know, different things like that. So Don had to study like eight to ten hours a day uh, the language of the Sawi until he had this level of proficiency enough to allow him to share the gospel with these guys. So after months of daily study, remember he's a smart guy, most of us it would take years, it took him months, uh, he was able to tell the Sawi about Christ. And so, but he came to this dead end, right, in, in telling the gospel story of when he got to Judas's betrayal of Jesus, if you remember that, right, Judas betrays Jesus with, for a little bit of silver. And amazingly, at that moment when they heard that story, the Sawi started to cheer and to hail Judas as the hero of the story because theirs was a culture which honored treachery and betrayal. If you can lie and get over on somebody, that was a great value to them. They thought you were just smart and witty. So the Sawi regarded Judas as hero and Jesus just the dupe to be laughed at, right? And it seemed impossible to bring them to an understanding of redemption and salvation in Christ in such an atmosphere of such a twisted worldview with such twisted values and beliefs, right? Until he discovered what he called the redemptive analogy which pointed to Christ. And that is the Sawi concept of the peace child. Uh, when Don and his wife first moved there, they, they built a house near on, on, on the bank of a river, and uh, they lived among the Sawi, and they were, they were very well received, and they were highly regarded as the magic people who had medicines that could cure things, cure disease, and tools which made work a lot easier and things like that. But upon arrival, three Sawi villages, the whole village, each one of them, relocated to themselves from far away to live right next door to the Richardson along that river and they and think about this as a young mother too they danced and they drummed and they chanted for three straight days and three nights to celebrate their coming you know I, I just couldn't imagine being a being a young mom trying to get my baby to sleep at night when these guys are just dancing and screaming outside my my house all night but they're in full ceremonial dress they're just they're just ecstatic that he's the two on has finally come but the problem was that these were all three warring villages. They had a long-standing feud between one another, right? And so there was a constant fighting among the tribes. You know, fights broke out and occurred daily in their front yard, 
right? People getting killed right there in their front yard, shooting each other with arrows, stuff like that. And the Richardsons considered moving away so that the Sawi could go back to where they lived before and be separate from one another. At least they wouldn't kill each other. But the Sawi absolutely didn't want them to leave. So to secure peace, there was only one way. A father from one village had to give his son to a father in another enemy village to be brought up in that village. And as long as there was, that son was alive, there would be peace. They would never kill each other anymore. And the sacrifice that was made was too sacred to be looked upon lightly by the other villages, right? So they would honor this sacrifice and this peace treaty all the time, as long as that kid was still alive in that village. And this concept became known as the sacrifice of the peace child. So one father from one village took his son and he ran towards the enemy village, but as he did so, you know, he was gonna give him up to this other village as the peace child, but, but the problem was he had only one son. Right After years of marriage, that was his only child, his only son. And he took the baby and he ran through his village first, trying to see if there was another family who had numerous sons and that they would give up theirs instead, but no one would. So he had no choice. He, he just kept going, right? And with tears in his eyes and his, obviously his heartbroken uh, wife left behind, he handed over the peace child to the other village. And everyone watched. And they, as the receiving father, uh, took this baby to the, all the other men of the village and they all laid their hands on him and they received that child into their village as the peace child. Uh, so each man lays their hands on the child, they receive it to the village and peace was secured and there was an even, uh, an even greater and more sacred sac- sacrifice than usual because this father had given up his one and only son. And as this was unfolding before Don's eyes, he discovered the key to the Sawi's understanding of redemption and salvation. He began telling the Sawi about the great sacrifice of the Father in order to bring reconciliation and redemption to the world. He told them about Jesus as the peace child. As they began to understand the gospel, they started to say that if they had known that Judas had betrayed the peace child, they never would have considered him to be the hero of the story. Because although they admire those who are masters of treachery, they'd never condone someone who would betray the peace child. That's how strong this was, this honor code of peace he brings. So... Great story. I love that story. I've read, if you want to read the book, it's um, Eternity in Their Hearts. Wonderful story. I think it's chapter one. In another story, uh, a Christian missionary was working with a people group in North Africa at war with another tribe over livestock and crops. And she asked if there was any way that peace could be established between the two uh, with this other faction, right? And after some discussion and thinking, the people remembered an old rite that they had not practiced in a long time uh, that they could perform at this other tribe. And in this ritual, two enemy tribes would meet on the opposite sides of a river, on the opposite banks of the river, and they would have a goat for a sacrifice. And they would wade into the river, and they would... Slit the goat's throat, sorry to say. And they would plunge it underwater, upstream, and they would bathe in the river and the goat's blood as it washed over them in the current. And after washing in the river, 
the blood and the, this blood of the sacrifice, the two tribes would come out of the river on the same side of the river as one family. And since one cannot kill his own family members, the warring would cease forever. And that's what they did. And amazingly, we know, we can see it right there, that this parallels God's own work of making peace with us. That the story of the Bible is that we are at war with God as humanity, right? And that we couldn't have peace until God provided a sacrifice and his own son, his own self, and he met us in the river. And when we meet him in the river and wash in the blood of the sacrifice, we can exit as God's own family and we have everlasting peace with him. All really cool stories. I have one myself. When I was in Lampung, uh, Indonesia, there was an ancient rite that had long since been forgotten and it was actually outlawed at this point, but it was still a story that we could use. And I had stumbled on it in these old ancient writings and nobody, nobody knew about it anymore. And the story goes like this. It's a little bit graphic, but if a man raped a woman, she, it was punishable by death. Uh, but if this guy had a servant, uh, he could offer that guy as a replacement, which they called the Irawan, right? And so they, what they would do is they would take the servant to the woman's house and they would tie him to a stake in the front yard and sadly to say they would cut his throat and they would drain his blood into a bowl and then the offender, the rapist, would disrobe and he would wash his whole body in, in uh, the blood of this sacrificed man, effectively washing away the sin that he had committed and peace would be restored in that village. And I shared this with all of my church planters out there working in villages and I instructed them to use the story to explain the gospel whenever they could. And it was just something that the Lampungis knew, they, they, although they didn't and couldn't practice to that anymore, thankfully, they, they still knew the story and it made sense to them. And the work of uh, evangelizing the Lampung goes on today, and the Lampungese church is still growing. So again, the, the early church proclaimed the unknown God has become known through Jesus, right? And all truth is God's truth, that there are many things in this world which can encourage and lead unbelievers to Jesus. Culture has uh, sort of residue of its creator within it, Sometimes people get it right, right? Which we can positively sort of exploit to bring Jesus into the conversation. There are bridges to the gospel if we are intentional to look at, look for them and think about them, right? Are we listening for that bridge that God has sort of provided in the personal experiences of people or in the culture of our listeners as we seek to share Christ with them? Because like the Richardsons, like the Andersons, like that young female uh, missionary, I don't know her name, or the church planters in Lampung, God has provided open doors of understanding the death and the resurrection of Christ to people. At our men's gathering, Jack's son shared that uh, the Chinese symbol for righteousness is the word lamb over the top of the word me, Right? And that's very interesting. It communicates the right, that righteousness comes by the Lamb of God, something that is embedded in their culture and their language. And that's nothing short of amazing if you think about it. Many of our redemptive analogies in America here in this culture come in the way of movies and stories with messianic plots that we produce, storylines which we 
we make, right? We write or we, we film. And story is extremely powerful, isn't it? Yours is included, your story. What has Christ done in your life? And have you ever told people that, right? Because you can't just live your life not telling anybody. We, we are called to tell that story. And we, we talked about the plot of the matrix, you know, uh, a few weeks back as a messianic plot. We, you know, we look at the, the, the Narnia book series and the movies that are produced as a result, how, how heavily they weigh in this, right? We, we think about the passion of the Christ, and obviously that has this, this storyline in it. The Lord of the Rings movies as well, and there's, I'm sure you can come up with many more examples. There are examples all over the place in our culture. Churches in the past have done movie nights where they play a movie, they invite friends, and they watch it, and then they, they sit around and they discuss the messianic plot line and what it means to the gospel and how it relates to, to us. Um, and that's apparently been effective. The question is, are we reading culture well with the Bible in one hand and the news and the stories of our culture in the other hand, bringing them together to communicate Jesus to the people around us? The great sin on our part, and this is a good thought to leave this, this um, series with, the great sin on our part is that many an opportunity is lost. We're not even thinking about doing it, right, often. We don't take what God is saying to others and press into it with them for the glory of Jesus and their salvation. So have you honed your testimony to clearly illustrate what Christ has done in you so that you are ready to share your faith in a moment's notice? I gave you all a sheet this morning of how to prepare your testimony. And the, the point about that is make it about Christ. Don't make it about you. Use your story to glorify Christ. Use scripture. Get used to telling your story. What has Christ done in you? How has he changed you? You know, how, you know and I, I just would urge you to do that, to sit at home, think it through, write it out, and, and keep it short. Keep it like three minutes, you know, because people have short attention spans. And, and then share it with other believers to ensure that you're communicating the repentance and the faith in Christ that is necessary for salvation through your story. That, that your story points to Jesus and not to yourself. Change it if need be, revise it if need be, and then practice it with other people and begin to share it. That's my final challenge to you through the seven weeks of, of uh, this series. Let me pray for us as we head into communion today. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are the creative, creator of the universe, that you're not served by human hands, you have no need, but in your love and your mercy, you have pursued us and you are still pursuing people in this world and you've called us to be witnesses to that fact. So we pray that you would make us experts, experts in you, that we would realize that what we believe and how we communicate is very, very important. I pray that you would open our eyes to the opportunities that are right before us with people that we interact with. I pray for open doors for the gospel to go into their lives. Whether they reject it or accept it is not up to us, Father. We understand that, but we are called to do it. So we just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us clarity in that. We thank you, Father. And in Christ's name we pray.
Amen. So if you would stand with me, we're going to enter into um, uh, communion now. And how this works at 6-8 is that we're going to, we're going to uh, after I get done here, we're going to open it up and you can come up anytime during the rest of the service, you know, whenever you're ready. We often urge people to be prayerful about that. If there's something they need to ask the Lord for forgiveness for, if there's somebody they need to forgive or what have you, do that now and then make your way up here and just take the bread and dip it in the wine and then, and then, um, and take it when you're ready. But we want to also read the Apostles' Creed uh, together. So if, if you would follow along and read out loud along with me. We're going to start in one, two, three. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, by the way, some people get confused by that word Catholic in there. We're not a Catholic church, obviously, but Catholic just means the, the church across the world. Um, but we know that Christ, on the night he was betrayed, broke bread and said, this is my, my body broken for you. Uh, and then he took the, the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And this is a practice that he calls us to do together as a body of Christ to remember this, to keep it before us all the time. And I'm becoming increasingly convinced that the, the majority of the church has lost their footing on the gospel. And so practices like this are helpful to, to practice them and remember them and remember it always right before us. So let this be a moment that Christ actually leads you back to what it is that we believe, which is really expressed in that Apostles' Creed. Let me pray for us as we come. Father, I pray that you would give us clean hearts, pure hearts, We pray that you would renew the joy of our salvation in us. We pray that as we come to this table today to remember your sacrifice, your bleeding out, your broken body, that we would walk out of here today just a little bit more aware of who you are and what you are to us. And we thank you that you loved us enough to come and make this sacrifice and that you're speaking to cultures across the world in order to draw people back into relationship with you. We pray that we could be a part of that process in their lives with all the people that we know and interact with. In Christ's name we pray, amen.